Today's episode of Eco Chic is brought to you by Sawyer, a brand committed to keeping you outdoors. Sawyer is all about bringing you the best technology to make simple products that keep you going regardless of your journey. Whether you're camping or ultra lightweight backpacking, keeping your kids safe and hydrated, or bringing clean water to developing countries. I like their bug spray because it's odorless after it dries and can go directly on your clothes or your gear so you're not sitting in sticky, smelly bug spray while you're hiking or gardening or doing whatever else outdoors. Sawyer also has a cool SPF 30 formula that's designed to stay put. It's formulated to go a little deeper into your skin so it's less likely to rub off during activities like swimming or, again, just sweating outside during the summertime. Listeners can use code ECPOD25 at checkout for 25% off at Sawyer.com. Today's episode of Eco Chic is also brought to you by TotallyEcoChic.com, the eco-conscious lifestyle shop by this podcast. This shop is your place for finding cute, infinitely reusable items as you continue to reduce your plastic footprint. I most especially want to recommend our canvas produce bags. They come in a set of three, each bag a different size, and are ideal for replacing those single-use plastic produce bags. Did you know the average lifespan of a plastic bag is 12 minutes? Plus, if you're bringing your reusable shopping bags to the store, do you really want to be filling them with tons of tiny plastic bags? Our canvas bags are a great way for your package-free, loose produce to come home with you, like cucumbers and carrots and zucchinis. And if your grocery store carries kale that comes in a bunch instead of a bag or a box. But the canvas produce bags are also really good for bulk shopping for items like rice and beans and flour for all that quarantine baking we're doing. You can shop at totallyecochic.com and use code ECOCHIC, all one word, for 10% off your purchase. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? When we think about the energy system right now, and especially in the context of coronavirus, a lot of people have been pointing to the fact that the air is cleaner, you know, there's fewer cars on the road, and that seems really exciting and like we've had a lot of progress. And that's true. This crisis has shone a light on the world we could have if clean energy solutions were deployed at a mainstream level, things like electric cars and renewable energy and things like that. But we've also now seen some data come out, and this is from an international, this is from the International Energy Agency, so looking globally, apparently greenhouse gas emissions are expected to drop by 8% this year, and that's with us basically shutting down our economies, right? Huge job losses, a lot of wealth destroyed. So not the ideal way of reducing carbon emissions, but still, we only got to 8%. We have to get to a reduction of 8% each year for like the next couple decades in order to meet our climate targets. So I think that's both a hopeful note that it's possible to reduce emissions, but it also shows just how important it is to transition our systems to cleaner resources. Because if shutting the entire world economy down only got us 8% and we had to do 8% every year for the years to come for the next decade, it shows that we have a lot more work still to do.
Hello, everyone. I hope you are doing well today. We just opened up with a clip from Julia Piper, our guest today, and it is a good episode. I'm excited for you to be here. My name is Laura Diaz. I'm sorry I haven't introduced myself yet. It is so good to have you back for another episode of Eco Chic. Julia Piper is a contributing editor at Green Tech Media, where she covers the global clean energy transition, focusing on renewable energy, electric mobility, grid edge technologies, and green energy policymaking. She is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, as well as the host and producer of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world. I personally am a huge fan of political climate, and I would highly recommend if you are interested in policy and green energy and just clean climate policy transition conversations, I would highly recommend her podcast. And I'm not just saying that because I really like Julia. I think it is an incredible podcast for a truly bipartisan conversation around environmental issues. Because I think doing a bipartisan, non-biased podcast is a very, very difficult challenge. It's hard to keep these conversations truly neutral. And Julia does it in such a way that is incredibly presented. And it's a true show. She has great guests, great correspondence, and it is put together just so well, so well produced. So I highly recommend her podcast. However, I am also a big, big fan of Julia's climate policy written work. Julia has covered climate policy for E&E News in Washington, D.C., and has conducted several international projects, including Haiti, Germany, Israel, India, and the Maldives. We talk a little bit today about a recent trip she took to India to cover clean energy. Her writing has been published in HuffPost, Scientific American, and the New York Times. Julia is a graduate of McGill University and earned her master's degree from Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. She holds a broadcast associate credit on two segments of 60 Minutes, which is pretty exciting. Her 2016 documentary, Empowering Haiti, was shortlisted in the World Bank's Film for Climate Competition. In 2017, Julia was named a 30 Under 30 by Green Biz and the World Business Council for Sustainability. And she's a recipient of the National Press Club Vivian Award. So as you can probably tell, Julia is very, very, very good at what she does. And I am so excited to be having this conversation with her today because like I mentioned, I'm a big fan of her show. And I'm also just so interested in what she stands for. She has a really good gauge of justice and clean energy transitions. And she manages to be a truly bipartisan contributor to a lot of these conversations. Not only does she have a bipartisan podcast, but I feel like during our conversation that you're about to listen to, she manages to present things in a very neutral, non-biased way, which I so appreciate. Everything is research-backed and everything is looking at the big picture. And while I say that climate change should not be a political conversation, it doesn't need to be a divisive conversation Julia really lives and breathes that philosophy. She looks at everything with the facts and from an economic perspective and from a big picture humanitarian perspective, which I love so much. Julia and I talk about the energy industry as a whole, and then we get into some current topics around oil prices, some proposals around domestic oil, energy policy, and then we switch gears onto a topic that we both love, inclusivity and justice in the energy and environmental spaces. We talk about climate change, health, minority communities. Again, Julia is so brilliant, and it was so nice to talk to her and get to know her a little bit. This conversation is chock full of insight and, again, truly a bipartisan, big picture, unbiased outlook on energy. And I love that so, so much about Julia. 
Just a note, we did record this about three or four weeks ago, so some of the numbers and stats we present may be slightly outdated, but overall, this is a very pertinent, current conversation. I am sure you are going to love it. If you have a minute, I'd love if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's really helpful in supporting us, getting us to new listeners, helping us show up in that podcast app algorithm. We're on social media at EcoChic Podcast on Instagram, Facebook. My personal Instagram and Twitter will be below if you are inclined, plus my email. So let's finally get into it. The clean energy transition, energy policy, inclusivity, the path forward, and so much more with Julia Piper. Julia, I'm really excited for this conversation. I would love for us to just like dive right in and let's talk about energy in America. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the energy landscape, what's currently going on in the world of energy, where you think we're going. Hi. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. I love your podcast. I think you do a really great job. Yeah. So let's see. Energy in America. Well, there's a lot of different pieces to energy, right? There's electricity, which is actually separate from oil, uh, which goes into our cars and oil isn't really even used in electricity. And then there's things like industry where we you know, make stuff, which requires a whole bunch of other kinds of energy and is really energy intense. So the energy system just to sort of levels that here is complicated, it's big. And right now amid coronavirus, we're seeing that different elements of the energy industry are being affected differently. So the good news is that on the electricity side, this journey to 100% clean electricity that a lot of states have embarked on is largely continuing forward. Even though you know things are slowing down economically, there are state level policies like here in California where I live, where you know utilities are still transitioning. The utility where I live, Southern California, Edison, just made a huge purchase of batteries, which are going to be key in balancing out the intermittent wind and solar that we're putting here. So that's a good thing. Another win that your listeners might be interested in is in Virginia, which is a state that has not historically been on the leading edge of this energy transition, but they did pass a big 100% clean electricity bill. I think it was last year. And just in recent days, the big utility there, Dominion, announced that they're quadrupling their wind and solar purchases, and they're deploying a bunch of batteries there too. So even though we're all in this like really stressful time amid coronavirus, unsure what's happening in the economy, there are some bright spots here on the electricity transition toward renewables. Um, you asked about the energy system overall though, and like I said, it, it's big and complex. So oil is another element here. And people may know that oil prices have totally collapsed in recent weeks. And that has to do with some geopolitical issues going on between Saudi Arabia and Russia that then kind of rippled all across the world and the US got involved. Um, But now the industry is facing a huge decline in demand. That's because no one's driving anywhere, right? No one's really flying. So this is creating a real kind of crisis moment for the oil industry that I think some climate folks would be interested in and maybe excited about because it could be a moment where oil really starts to lose its power globally for decades to come, depending on what happens amid the current crisis it's facing. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up oil because I definitely want to get into that. And I'm also so glad that you mentioned those really bright spots in the electricity system because I did hear about Virginia passing their clean energy bill. And I was so excited to hear that because you're absolutely right in saying like historically they're not aggressive climate folks. It's really promising to see that states on their own are making these commitments 
to clean electricity and cleaning up their grids because we don't really have a national policy on that yet. So it's good to see that like these things are continuing on amidst the current crisis. And, and I'd love to talk about oil. I'd love to talk about what it means for oil prices to collapse. You've mentioned that a lot of these issues are geopolitical. And what does it mean for this global system to really move away from oil? Well, I guess we get to see whether or not this move away from oil really sticks, right? That'll come down to what longer term consumer habits are. So whether people transition to EVs, for instance, whether people get back in public transit. And this is where there could be fewer bright spots in the sense of bright spots. I don't want to take a side here, but accepting that we all need to decarbonize. There are fewer bright spots in the sense that people may be hesitant to get back into buses and trains, right? Like we're all a little bit like weirded out by coronavirus and we may not have a vaccine for a while. So there could be a rebound in oil as economies start to pick back up again, people getting back in cars and back in planes. Right now though, the industry is confronting a real crisis. They're having these low prices due to some geopolitical factors and this low demand. And because of some financial issues, they had bad loans or really bad debt. And so there's just business issues that they're going to have to face. I think, again, the question is, will they get policy help that helps the oil industry get back on its feet? And then it's healthier financially. And we continue back to being an oil-dominated economy as the economies around the world pick up? Or is this truly a change of course where low consumer demand and changing consumer habits amid these other financial stresses that are happening in the sector cause us to shift away from oil in a bigger way longer term? I think the oil industry itself is realizing that it might be facing that latter scenario where demand is just not going to be what it once was around the globe. And that'll be a, an amazing moment in the, in the broader energy transition worldwide. That's really cool to think about. I'm also interested to hear a little bit on the policy side of things, like what policy would have to look like for us to truly move away from an oil-dominated society. I briefly read an article, this is like super wild card, but I read an article that was making a case for nationalizing oil or nationalizing gasoline companies or something along those lines. And this was a couple weeks ago, so I wish that I had it like right in front of me to relay to you. But it was an interesting case because I hadn't really thought about the idea of like policy being able to step in and really nationally manage how we use energy. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on where policy needs to go if we're going to be transitioning to a cleaner economy. Yeah, I mean, the nationalizing discussion is super fascinating. I don't know if in the United States there would be appetite for that politically. And even some environmentalists I know say, hey, why would the public purchase these oil companies and these oil assets at a loss and then take that on you know, the public purse? And then, and then what? There would still be pressure to operate them. Would there be political will to shut down the entire United States oil industry if the public bought it? Like that's what some climate activists would like to see. Let's buy these oil companies while they're cheap and suffering, and then let's shut them down. And there's an interesting intellectual discussion to be had around that. I'm just not sure that, again, politically that would work. And there are a lot of geopolitical reasons why I think a lot of Americans do want a domestic oil sector. They put climate sort of to the side in that case. 
So getting a little wonky here, but yeah, the nationalizing discussion is interesting. What, what seems to be currently happening under the Trump administration is that they're providing favorable financing terms to these oil and gas companies to help them get back on their feet, which you know, would be great, I think, for some people if there were other strings attached, like, hey, you also have to make sure that you're not leaking any methane, which is a really bad greenhouse gas, right? But it seems like these are fairly, you know, no strings attached supports. So what'll be interesting to see is if that changes, if, if policy going forward will put some kind of limits on how polluting oil and gas can be. The nationalizing discussion, again, I think I encourage people to read up on and I need to do so more myself, but I'm not sure that it would actually see the light of day here anyway. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think that you put it really nicely that we don't necessarily have an appetite for a nationalized domestic oil sector in America. I think saying that is just like, that's the best way to put it. Because again, I don't know that much about it either. And I'm always a little weary. I try to go into all of these more activist focused discussions with a grain of salt. And I try to be really practical when I read these policy proposals from the public. I think it's interesting, but yeah, again, like, I don't know if it could really happen. And it's also interesting to think that like a lot of these policy supports for the oil industry don't have a lot of strings attached to it. I'm interested to see where this goes because you're totally right in saying that a lot of people will be more weary of public transportation, of the transition, and we don't know if this situation with oil is going to stick because maybe it does bounce back. Because, I mean, I know for one, like, I personally, I'm not going out to, like, lick the subway the day that restrictions are lifted, you know? Like, I'm going to be nervous about it. So, um, That's the weird human behavior element, right? Yeah. Things that we even know would be better for our future, maybe, in terms of reducing our local air pollution and fighting climate change. It's just hard amid a crisis to try something new, I think, for just being honest, right? Like, it'll take a little while, I think, for consumer confidence in new things to come back. Although I will say on the flip side here in California, because, you know, wildfires haven't gone away amid the coronavirus, people are already thinking, I want solar and energy storage on my property so that if the grid goes down or they do these like power outages ahead of the fire, which they do here, just in case there's an issue where the electricity equipment itself causes a fire, people want to have the power on their property so they can be self-sufficient. And that demand has actually not gone down, which I think is super interesting. So a different way people are reacting to a crisis there. But yeah, we honestly just don't know yet how it's going to play out. Wow. I would have never really thought to dive into getting solar panels at this point just because of where I'm geographically located, but it makes complete sense. If you know wildfire season is upon us, of course, you're going to be thinking, okay, how did this play out last year? What did the utility company do? How can I avoid that in the future? So I think kind of the silver lining of the not just the pandemic, but just natural disasters and these things that people go through is that you move forward thinking, how can I better prepare myself and how can I be more resilient in the future? And I hope that's the stance that the country takes moving forward, especially when it comes to clean energy. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people in that industry are waiting for the kind of policy support that has been offered so far to oil, like we were just talking about. The clean energy industry in America has lost 106,000 jobs just in March. The numbers for April, I don't think have come out yet, but they're expecting those numbers to be as high or maybe even higher. And that's a lot of people losing jobs. Uh, renewables alone lost 16,000 jobs in that one month of March. And so they're saying, hey, can we also get some kinds of policy support here? And to your point about rebuilding more in a more resilient manner, that's a very lively discussion on Capitol Hill, as I understand it, but hasn't quite seen traction. There's been discussion about having an infrastructure bill. Even President Trump has actually called for that and, and Democrats have called for that. 
but uh, the Republicans in the Senate are reluctant to do a big spending package, given that they've already you know, initiated a bunch of spending, just an immediate response to the virus. So it's a ripe opportunity to be big and bold, but I think there's also, again, that political will question of just how big and bold people in Congress are willing to be. I'm interested to see how this plays out in the next few months. I'm glad that you're reporting as things are happening live because this is just getting me excited to stay aware and on top of the bills that are being presented and passed. So I'm glad we're talking about that, but I would love to switch gears because I know that you're really passionate about inclusivity in the energy conversation. So I would love to talk to you a little bit about the makeup of the people in this energy conversation Who's dominating the conversation? Why aren't we seeing more minorities or women? To start with a really topical issue, we now know based on statistics that are coming out around the coronavirus that it is disproportionately affecting African-Americans and minority groups, people of color, Hispanic communities in New York, for instance, have been particularly hard hit. Uh, We covered this recently on Political Climate, the podcast that I produce. So it's front of mind for me. Um, I can't speak for these communities. I am a white female, but I've learned a lot from them recently and having these discussions and they really point to these staggering and truly tragic figures of communities where African-Americans make up, say, 30% of the population, like in Chicago, but have 70% of the deaths from coronavirus. And this relates to energy because oftentimes those same people live near power plants, fossil fuel plants that cause air pollution. And a Harvard study found that there is a correlation between the damage to your lungs from air pollution and then your susceptibility to a lung disease and a lung illness like coronavirus. So these issues are directly connected. Uh, Same in Louisiana, there's a stretch called Cancer Alley where there's petrochemical plants. And right now, last figures I saw, that little stretch, that community has the highest per capita death rate from coronavirus right next to these power plants. So we really have to start by thinking about Who is being impacted by the crises of our time? (laughs) Coronavirus, air pollution, and then ultimately climate change, because usually lower income communities that can't adapt as quickly are disproportionately affected by the effects of climate change as well, like heat waves and floods and things like that. So just wanted to shine a light on that to start. Then you get into, okay, well, how do you engage these communities who clearly need the jobs, need the improved air and health and, and transportation access? How do you engage them in this green new economy that we're talking about? And there, there's an uncomfortable truth that minority groups are below the national average in terms of jobs in the solar sector, specifically. That's the sector I know the stats for front of mind. And women and African-Americans fall below those national employment figures. So we have to start thinking about how does that clean energy economy be truly inclusive and find ways to hire people and bring them into this transition in a way that you know, works for them, works for their communities, and then helps them grow wealth and be part of this economic transition at the same time. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, first of all, to draw the parallel between not just where we are seeing the most coronavirus cases, but also where we're seeing the most health issues in general. When we talk about environmental injustices, a lot of the time these communities, like you mentioned, they have higher rates of certain diseases. They have more rates of childhood asthma. The one that I always think of is the South Bronx. And I think that a lot of people are starting to realize, like the more that we talk about it, it's not just like not fair, it's unjust and it's inherently 
a social issue if we are talking about climate change. I'm just glad that you're shining a light on all of these different things right now. And I'm interested to hear a little bit more about like the inclusivity factor of the general energy conversation and just kind of where we see the power lying, not just that we're not seeing enough women or we're not seeing enough minority groups in general, just who is actually in power? Who holds the authority to really make some sort of significant impact on the global energy discussion or the American energy discussion? I feel like that's kind of a loaded question. So like do with that what you will. I'm just so taken aback that there's so few people that are truly dictating the way that the economy works and the way that our energy sector works. Well, to your point of who's in power, I think a lot of people don't realize that where they live, they have state utility regulators. And you may have covered this on your show, and it's kind of wonky. These are people that may be elected in some states, or they may be appointed by the governor. And they're not a person you'd normally hear about. They're not a politician in the news. They have huge power over what happens to the energy mix in a given state. And those utility proceedings I've talked about this with community groups and communities of color. You know, it takes time to be involved in them. You have to show up at these public meetings and maybe even have a lawyer, you know, file their, your paperwork for you if you want to weigh in on, you know, where your energy mix is going by 2050. And so that I think is beyond just the elected politicians and and that realm of policymaking going to the utility regulatory level is super interesting. And there's a lot of power there that people may not realize. And so I think that's a space where there needs to be more inclusivity. There needs to be an effort to reach out to those groups and understanding that schedules are difficult. And there is a movement slowly building around energy justice. We hear about environmental justice. Energy justice is kind of a mix of that and, again, the energy system. And so Tony Reams, a professor at the University of Michigan, is working a lot on this of how do you get minority groups low-income groups who just don't normally have a voice in the policymaking process into these wonky meetings that actually carry a ton of weight. So I think that's both an area where the power lies and there's hopefully a transition happening there. Oh, that's a great point. I've actually never spoken about energy regulators because I feel like it is very niche and it's hard to figure out who your regulators are. And sometimes it varies state by state. I'm glad that you brought it up because I think it's a really good point to say that the regulatory agency is really supposed to be there to work for the people and to make sure that energy prices stay not just fair, but affordable and accessible. And sometimes those goals aren't necessarily met just because by nature, it's a political situation. There's a lot of barriers to getting your voice heard. And I think in the climate space, in the sustainability space, more casually, we talk a lot about like, you have to make your voice heard, you have to vote, you have to show up. But if there are systems in place that are putting up barriers so that you can't necessarily show up to your best capacity, or you can't necessarily show up to advocate for your community, or your community just isn't being brought up in these conversations, it's Mm -hmm. inherently an unjust system. Yeah, I mean, they would say there's a community, South Woodlawn, just south of Chicago, and they succeeded, um, they being Blacks and Green, this organization there and some other organizations succeeded in getting a seat at the table in the negotiation of a big landmark energy bill in Illinois. Um, Normally, they said, frankly, the white environmental organizations would speak for the entire environmental community just because they had relationships, they knew the process, they knew the schedules, they knew how this bill would roll out, they knew who to speak to. And I I don't think it was 
in an effort to shut down other voices that the white environmental groups, you know, had a little bit more of a presence there. But it did just mean that there, you know, there were other views in the environmental movement that were not being adequately represented. So again, sometimes you have to face these uncomfortable facts that even as a wide group of people are trying to root for a better future, are you shining a light back on yourself and asking, are you including a diverse range of perspectives? It's hard enough as it is to create change, but you do have to do it in an inclusive way, I think, for it to stick. I'm really, really glad that you brought that up. I was so not expecting to have this conversation around social justice and the energy movement. I think it's important that we talk about inclusivity, and I think it's important that we talk about the reality that a lot of these conversations that want to be more inclusive and do the right thing they can't always do that just because of the nature of the beast. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And I'm curious to know a little bit about about women now, just women in general and women in the energy space. Do you feel like women are being involved in the climate conversation? Yeah, I feel like things are getting better as everything I've learned from my reporting. However, there's a long way to go. I think some of that's legacy issues. Things like women in STEM is an issue across the board. And so the energy industry being a wonky industry is not totally immune from that. But the solar industry, for instance, actually saw its percentage of women in the sector decline slightly last year. So, you know, why is that? And are women actually moving up? It's not just getting them in the sector, but are they becoming leaders? Are they becoming board members? What are they making? Because the solar industry's own data shows that women there are making 74 cents on the dollar to men. And it's really uncomfortable because we started this whole conversation about, you know, the energy transition in the United States, how big and complicated that is. I think it's hard to then be like, okay, and you have to factor in diversity. But again, it's kind of has to go hand in hand for these solutions to be really viable. So yeah, so I wrote a piece for Huffington Post that shone a light on the clean energy sector's own kind of failings on the diversity front. And I think it came in at a a bad time because everyone was just talking about the job losses in their sector. But this one woman told me, we have to be better. If we're going to be the future, if we're going to be 100% clean, the way that the industry says it wants to be and advocates want it to be, then you have to be 100% for the 100%. And uh, that's kind of, you know, where we're at in this journey. Whoa, I love that. You have to be 100% for the 100%. Like, I really, really like that. That's so powerful. Yeah, and it's, it's going to be hard. And I think there's even conflict there around what do you do about oil workers, right? We talked about the oil sector at the beginning. We're not just talking about minority groups and women, but also what happens to lower income people or people out of jobs as their whole communities maybe even crumble around them, like we saw with coal power as it phased out in America. It left a lot of communities hollowed out. Things that people didn't realize, like, They were stuck with mortgages they couldn't get out of because no one wanted to move to this small town where there was no industry. So it's not like someone could even leave if they want to. They're stuck with this house that they can't sell. So how do we have this just transition is a conversation that's really happening in a lot of areas. I think the challenge will be to make sure that that actually stays front of mind, particularly amid this coronavirus crisis when it feels like there's so many issues to deal with. How do you keep this issue of a just transition on the agenda? Wow. Wow. Don't even have words. This is really (laughs) intense to think about because you're completely correct in saying that if we're going to have this conversation about a transition to a cleaner economy, how do we also make sure that these justice conversations are also at the forefront? Because I feel like a lot of the time 
not just in my own life or in politics, but a lot of the time the narrative is around just like pick your battles, like pick one thing and do what you can and whatever. And when you're picking your battles, when it comes to the energy conversation, it's it's not really fair to say like, okay, first I'm going to fight for clean energy and then I'll worry about making sure that social justice is also brought to the forefront. So I think that it's, it's going to be hard to just think about those two things in tandem. Yeah, I do think that there's reason for hope though, because this is why we have a bipartisan podcast, Political Climate. The Republican lawmakers want people in their districts to do well. In fact, sometimes that's the reasoning that they use for defending the oil and gas sector is like, look, it creates jobs here. How do we move away from this when it's a job creator in my community? Sort of putting, again, the climate concerns to the side. So I think this is a discussion that you know is rooted in progressive thought, but really everyone wants their community to succeed. So how do we turn the lens back onto the human element here and honestly, it's really more about not just thinking about the companies and earnings and, and lobbying and bills and thinking about, again, what the human need is in our communities and, and policy make around that. I think that's going to be the area of opportunity and, and challenge because those companies and biggest voices in the room do still dominate. They get the most headlines. So how you counteract that is, is tricky. It's about the human aspect of it. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I had a conversation probably about a year ago about just like how to speak with people who are not necessarily on the same page when it comes to climate change, people who don't want to accept climate change, climate skeptics. And a lot of the tactics around having these climate conversations with those individuals are around values. It's okay. Let's meet in the middle. And it's like, yes, I also want my community to succeed. And that's why I think we should promote this more green job educational training program or something along those lines. It's about like finding that common value and leading the conversation into light of climate change. I liked that kind of formula that was presented to me. And if anyone is listening and wants to hear that conversation, I'll link it in the show notes. But I also think it's cool to think that there is a lot of reason for hope and there is a lot of just silver lining around these justice conversations and around the idea that you can have a bipartisan conversation around climate change. I love to say that like it shouldn't be a divisive topic because people are all being affected, you know, some more than others, clearly, as we're talking about justice. But I think that there is a lot of hope to have in the climate conversation once we can have those human connecting elements. I mean, I do think, and I don't want to be overly Pollyannish about it, it's really hard at the federal level to get bipartisan action on anything climate related, even clean energy related these days. The Senate had a big bill people may or may not know about that had a bunch of clean energy policies in it and it just couldn't get through, even though it had a fair amount of bipartisan support. So there is gridlock there. I think there's more interest and and more action at the lower levels at states and cities. And I think your point about people seeing the hope and the opportunity in the clean energy economy is totally true. Like there's bipartisan support for solar and wind and those clean energy resources. Poll and poll again show that. I think the tricky issue and this goes back to where we started about energy being complicated and there being multiple sectors, is when it comes to oil and gas. Oil is not on the way out of our economy just yet. We still rely on it for transportation, which is separate from electricity. And gas, while we've seen coal be moved out of our power system, uh, gas is still a big player. And even in that Virginia case I mentioned early on, the utility hasn't quite figured out how to get rid of its gas. And so that's actually a, a, a conflict point there with the environmental groups around what is the utility's plan for getting off of gas? They haven't presented it yet. So I would say that you gotta look at what resource we're talking about, take the winds uh, in, in the sense that the economy for clean energy is growing, but the transition is just really beginning in many respects. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like goals are being set, but we're not necessarily seeing the steps to accomplishing those goals all the way through. You got to get there. A lot, a lot has to happen between A and B and a lot more that gets even wonkier. Like we talked about energy storage at the beginning, mm-hmm. just how you put batteries on the grid and finance them. That's a whole area of like professional expertise and, you know, software systems and technologies that will, what we call the grid edge to like make all this new technology work together. All those pieces have to be functioning in order for this hundred percent transition to really happen. Wow. No, you're absolutely correct. Batteries is kind of like on a personal level, like a topic that I love to think about because I think battery storage is going to be an area of expertise where we see incredible growth and progress and new technology coming out in the next few years. Like I'm really excited about proper battery storage for solar, like just utility scale battery storage is going to be like so exciting to see. Is there anything that's happened recently that you are particularly proud that we've accomplished? I'd like to highlight India having just come back from there a few weeks ago, right before really the lockdowns happened. And there's been a lot of coverage in the past of these climate talks that happened where India has been sort of a holdout and signing on because they say, look, we can't transition off of coal because we have a lot of people still in poverty here and we need these fossil fuels that powered the United States and other big economies to their growth, we need them now to power our growth. But in recent years, the country has seen massive growth in its clean energy economy. They've, they've deployed wind and solar uh, in huge amounts. And when I was there, you know, they were pretty much on track to meet their 2021 targets, maybe a little bit late, but there was good momentum. And because of coronavirus, they've actually been set off track a little bit, but the momentum continues. The Modi government there is creating policy opportunities to keep this growth happening. And so I guess we just have to commend a country that will be so critical in the global fight against climate change for continuing that fight amid the current coronavirus crisis. In fact, their progress is sort of shining a light back on some other developed countries saying, hey, are you really doing enough? Because if India is doing it, you know, you might want to be sure that, that your government is too. So um, a shout out to India for, for really growing its clean energy economy and being a fascinating place to learn more about. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's awesome. I feel like I've heard a little bit about the Indian energy economy here and there, but I definitely haven't heard that much in detail and it's very promising. So I can't see how other countries would resist that transition. If, if India is doing such a great job, why can't we also do a great job? So I love that. Yeah, well, it really comes back to other countries also helping India in its transition. Mm -hmm. There's definitely uh, some conflict and tension around developed countries versus developing and who helps whom. But nonetheless, India is doing well in its own right. So yes, we'll, we'll see how all this continues in the wake of this crisis. But I think that is a bright spot that we can hang our hat on. Thank you so, so much for tuning in to today's episode of Eco Chic with Julia Piper. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Like I mentioned, it felt like such a good, interesting, insightful, truly unbiased conversation, and I hope you really appreciated that. I will have all of Julia's links down below. I will have all of my links down below. And again, thanks so much for tuning in, and I will see you very soon. Bye. Bye.